Let's get to Luke chapter 1. Luke, the third gospel in the New Testament, first chapter is where we're going to be. All right, well, Christmas time is a time full of stories, isn't it? Many a family's holiday traditions involve listening to a story together or watching a story together. And it's probable that right now some of you are even thinking about some of your favorite Christmas stories or the traditions that you have in your families. And the truth is most of these stories aren't just intended to entertain us. They're actually intended to teach us something. For example, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. What does Rudolph teach us? Rudolph teaches us that being different doesn't make you inferior. In fact, it's that difference that allows you to be able to uniquely contribute at times to the greater good. What does the Grinch teach us? The Grinch teaches us that anyone can change, no matter how disgusting you are, especially if you show them love and acceptance, and it helps if your name's Cindy Lou Who, too. What about Santa Claus is coming to town? I'm just going to warn you, this is going to get a little creepy here. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. I'm not sure if this is a song or a threat, Um, I'm sure it was written by an exasperated parent. I think we've all been there. What about classics like Dickens' A Christmas Carol? What's that teach us? Teaches us that the pursuit of money doesn't make us happy. It's our family and our friendships, our relational connections that do that. I mean, even the movie Elf teaches you something. Like, Like, if you are a human being raised in a specific geographic area by mystical creatures... You can consume diabetic coma levels of sugar and have no ill effect at all. I don't recommend you do that. I don't think that's good teaching, but um, we see things in stories. Stories are powerful mechanisms that authors use to teach us things. And this morning, we're going to look at the story of a man in Luke chapter 1. However, this story is not merely teaching us a good moral principle to live by. This God-breathed, true story is intended by its divine and human authors to teach us foundational doctrinal truths about God himself, truths that are critical for the readers and hearers of this story to know and believe. And today we're going to be looking at what I'm calling an Advent carol. It's the story of Zechariah. Now, those of you Bible scholars probably know this. I didn't. But I found out this week, there are 17 Zacharias in the Bible. Yeah, we're not going to look at all 17. We're looking at Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And here's what this story in Luke 1 is going to teach us. We must trust God because he is able and faithful to do everything he promises to do. Let me say it again because this is the moral of the story. We must trust God because he is able and faithful to do everything he says he's going to do. So let's look at Luke chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 5 and go through 15. 
In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Help us with your word today, Lord. So let's jump into the first part of this story, Zachariah's visitation. Now, immediately in this story, we are introduced to Zachariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Zachariah was a priest. Elizabeth is a descendant of the priestly line as well. And Luke describes both of them in verse 6 as righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. Now, this word blamelessly here isn't intended to communicate that they were without sin. Rather, it means that their lives were conformed to God's law. These were upright, respectable citizens of the Jewish community who lived their lives in a way seeking to obey God. And Luke makes sure we know this about them. This is important because we're going to see in verse 7 there's a problem they have, and that's not due to their sin. Sometimes there's trials we have in life that are just a result of our sin. Luke is saying, that's, this is not the case here. These are upright people. This is simply God's sovereign decree in their life working its way out. Verse 7 tells us that Elizabeth was barren and that both Zachariah and Elizabeth were very old. In ancient Hebrew culture, being barren would have been viewed as a disgrace, and as I mentioned, even sometimes as a punishment. And we know that being very old doesn't really um, fuel the expectation of a pregnancy coming along. This couple had lived righteously. They were doing the right things. And yet God had sovereignly brought this trial into their lives, not as a punishment, but as a means to a greater purpose that he has. And now that Luke has introduced these characters to us. He sets up the scene for us in this story. See, Zechariah is a priest. He's serving in the temple. And priests were divided into 24 divisions, and they typically served for one week twice a year. And Zechariah's division is currently on duty. And this text tells us that according to the custom, he had been chosen by casting lots. It's kind of like rolling dice as the one who will serve to burn the incense in the Holy of Holies. So to be selected to burn this incense was considered both a huge responsibility because of the significance of that and a great honor. Most priests 
would never be selected to do this in their lifetime. There were just way too many priests for the number of time this would be done. So to be selected would be incredible. And, and if you were selected, you would never be selected again. Your time had come. You were done. So in God's sovereign plan, Zechariah had just been selected for a once-in-a-lifetime honor to burn incense before the Lord, and quite possibly the greatest honor of his life up to this point. And the story tells us outside the temple, the multitude of the people are praying as he goes in. You can envision this happening. But while in the Holy of Holies, something even more extraordinary happens. Zechariah is visited by an angel. Now, sometimes we see in Scripture that angels show up and you don't know about it. Like Hebrews 13.2 tells us to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Angels aren't always obvious to us according to Scripture, but Zachariah's experience is not like that. Something dramatic is happening it seems similar to angel visits that we saw as we just studied through Revelation where John would see an angel and he'd just start falling down and worshiping it because it was so spectacular. Zechariah doesn't fall in worship, but it says he was scared out of his wits. He was terrified, consumed with fear. But this angel quickly tells him not to fear. Zechariah, don't fear, for God has heard your prayer. And your wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to a son who will be named John. This angel goes on to tell him that he's going to have joy and gladness and many will rejoice in this child's birth because he will be great before the Lord. What incredible news this must have been for Zechariah. God has heard his prayer and after a lifetime of waiting, God is going to give he and his wife the son they have so longed for. And the angel keeps going describing this promised child by saying that he's going to be like a Nazarite dedicated to the Lord. He's going to be filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb. This has never happened to anyone ever before. This son's going to turn many in Israel to the Lord. And he's going to do this in the spirit and power of Elijah, one of the most powerful um, prophets in the Old Testament. He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And he's going to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In saying these things, this angel has just said that this promised child is going to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. See, it's been 400 years, 400 years since Israel has heard a word of prophecy. God has been quiet. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, it ended with a promise from God and a command to not forget his words. Let's look at the last three verses in the Old Testament. It'll be up on the screen. Malachi's just prophesied of the great day of the Lord and the Messiah's gonna come and set things right and then he closes with these three verses. He says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, 
lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Does that sound familiar? The angel has just told Zechariah that even though he and his wife are very old and his wife is barren, she is going to give birth to the promised second Elijah who will prepare the way for the long-awaited Messiah to come. Can you imagine receiving a promise in such a supernatural way like this? I mean, for Zechariah, he's got to be thinking, can this day get any better? Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, supernatural visitation, promise fulfillment of the Old Testament in a son to my barren wife as we are old in age. Surely he is going to be thrilled with this news. Well, let's keep reading and see how he responds. Zachariah's response is our second point today. Let's look at verse 18. And Zachariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah doesn't believe the angel. God has given him the greatest honor of his life to be selected to offer incense. He's angels dramatically appeared, sent by God, saying that God has heard his prayers and is going to give him a son. And that this promised son it will be the promised forerunner the promised messiah that they've been waiting on to come and save them as a people and zachariah says no that can't really happen my wife and i were really old you can't do that it's not going to work and before you think well it does seem like a valid question for him to have there's more going on here than just a humble faith-filled query And we see that evidenced in the angel's response. Let's keep reading in verses 19 and 20. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in my time, or in their time. The angel identifies himself. He reiterates his mission from God, and then Zechariah is disciplined, not for his question. Didn't say because you asked a question. Says because you didn't believe. Zechariah is disciplined for his unbelief. One commentator points out that Zechariah should not have doubted for several reasons. First of all, Zechariah, being a priest, was very familiar with the Scriptures. I mean, he knew the stories of divine intervention in births from Israel's history, specifically the key story of Isaac being born to Abraham and Sarah, which bears a very striking resemblance to Zechariah and Elizabeth's situation. Zechariah knew God had done this before. An old barren couple promised a son who would be integral to the deliverance of God's people. And in fact, the book of Romans commends Abraham's faith. When Abraham was promised this child, Abraham believed. And Romans 4.19 says that Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered those things. Zechariah did. Second reason Zachariah should have known about these things, I mean, he's an upright man. He's noted for his piety and faith. 
His normal would be to believe because he knows about God. Third, he was actively offering incense. This represented a petition to the Lord on behalf of the people because the Lord was able and willing to act on their behalf. And this experience also was clearly supernatural. Zachariah should have known this was from God. He should have known. Yet Zachariah disbelieved. When Gabriel announced who he was, I I suspect Zachariah would have remembered the story in Daniel 9. Daniel 9, Gabriel himself appears to Daniel to announce future messianic times to him, and Daniel believes. Here Gabriel is announcing the dawn of the messianic age, and Zechariah does not believe. And Zechariah's disciplined for this. Kent Hughes says this, he says, the penalty for the man's unbelief was well fitted to the offense. For Zechariah's tongue, which had uttered unbelief, was struck speechless. The aged priest would have nine months of silence, plenty of time to reflect on the situation. It also seems that this punishment was more than just not being able to speak, that he was struck deaf also. Um, This word that's translated in our language of being silent was often used, not always, but often used to refer to being both deaf and mute. Um, We also are going to see later in this story more evidence around this where his friends are trying to communicate to him, and it says they're needing to make signs to him. If he could hear, they would just say something, but they're trying to make signs to communicate to him. It seems that Zechariah is struck both deaf and mute. His world became silent. And Zechariah, whose name means the Lord has remembered, he has failed to remember. And he's questioned the validity of God's supernatural message because of mere natural circumstances. This priest of Yahweh has doubted that the creator who has proven his sovereignty over all things time and time again, that this this God can overcome the natural circumstances in Zechariah's life. He's doubted that. John Piper calls this how not to talk to an angel. I think he's right. Lawrence Richards observes how similar our responses can be to Zachariah's. He says this. He says, Zachariah's response to this announcement was one of hesitation and doubt. How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Zachariah's doubt was based on his understanding of nature. He had failed to take God into account. How often we hesitate to believe for the same reason. Answer my prayer? Well, the way things normally work out. I mean, how wonderful that our God is not restricted to the usual or bound by the merely natural. Our God is a God of the unusual, and the sooner we see God as he is, the more quickly our lives will be transformed. The sooner we see God as he is, the more quickly our lives will be transformed. Another way to say this, your life will be more quickly transformed when you see God as he really is. Do you see God as he is? Do you see him as completely sovereign in your circumstances, sovereign over all things? Do you knowingly or unknowingly put limitations on what you really believe God can do because you simply can't imagine that it's possible? 
Or do you believe that God can do whatever he wants to, even if it seems impossible? Many years ago, long before helping plant Risen Hope Church, I was, I was in a community group meeting where we had just read the wonderful truths of Romans 8, 38 and 39, talking about how absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. What a wonderful truth that we have in God's word about that. And we had just finished reading that as a small group, and I immediately asked the question, so what can separate us from the love of God? And one man who loves Jesus answered, he says, well, I think sometimes we can. And he began to describe times where he felt disconnected, separate from God. At times he felt he had separated himself from God's love, and he was equating his feelings to truth. Our feelings, though not insignificant, our feelings are not ultimate. Hear this. This is important. Our feelings, though honest, are not always truthful. Our feelings do not change who God is. They do not determine what he's capable of doing or willing to do. Friends, if our feelings are contending with what is true about God as revealed in his word, we must do what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. We need to stop listening to ourselves and start talking to ourselves. He says sometimes we need to grab ourselves by the shirt collar and say, self, you need to hear what's true. We would talk to ourselves more than just listening to ourselves. Believer, if you are here today and you feel like God does not love you, Choose to believe God's word that says nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you're doubting God's ability to supply all your needs like he promises in Philippians 4.19, choose to believe that truth that God will do that. Now, you may need to revise your definition of need to align with God's definition of need, but make no mistake God will do what he says he'll do, and he will meet your true needs. It may not be on your timeline. It may not be in the preferred manner you'd like to see it done. It may look very differently than your finite imagination has dreamed of. But know the truth of Ephesians 3.20, that God is able to do far more, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Zechariah did not believe. He demanded too much evidence before believing. Zachariah's unbelief, hear this, Zachariah's unbelief was focused on the difficulty of the promise, not the capability of the one who promised it. Let me say that again. Zachariah's unbelief focused on the difficulty of the promise rather than the capability of the one making the promise. And as a consequence, he was disciplined. This discipline involved humiliation. He was made to look foolish. He was humbled. It involved debilitation. He was incredibly disabling. I mean, I'm legally blind. I get that piece, but hearing and speaking, I can't imagine. It was corrective. Correction's hard, isn't it? But correction can also be a blessing. I mean, think about this. Zechariah was shut up from being able to just continue to sin in his expressing his unbelief. And it's beneficial. It forced him into thoughtful reflection. He had lots of time to reflect on God 
and what his response had been to God. One pastor says that we may not always be punished like this for unbelief, but there is always some loss incurred. Unbelief affects us. But in God's mercy and his providence, that is not the end of Zachariah's story, which brings us to point three, Zachariah's restoration. So after this visitation, Zechariah finished his time of service, it says, and he, he went home, and in verse 24, it tells us a few days later, Elizabeth conceived. And about six months after that, Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and tells her that Gabriel showed up to her to announce Jesus' birth. And upon hearing Mary's greeting, Elizabeth and her baby, it says, are filled with the Holy Spirit beginning that fulfillment of that announcement of Zechariah. Elizabeth had conceived beginning it, filled with the Spirit, just like Gabriel had said was going to happen in the mother's womb. And then we fast forward three more months, baby John is born, and we pick up the story in verse 57. We read 57 through 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother announced, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. And fear came on their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? From the hand of the, for the hand of the Lord was with him. The time of Zechariah's discipline had come to an end. According to custom, Elizabeth and Zechariah take their baby to be circumcised, and Elizabeth tells them the baby's name is John. Now, the people don't believe because they're like, well, custom, you're breaking custom. Uh, you should name it after the father. The father's name is Zechariah. So they kind of blow off Elizabeth and be like, hey, Zechariah, what do you want the name to be? And Zechariah says his name is John, which, by the way, means God is gracious. And immediately, Zechariah's mouth is opened and he begins to bless God. Zechariah believes. He believes. And he confirms this belief through obeying the proclamation of God through Gabriel by naming the baby John. He exercised his belief. And then he blesses the Lord through a prophecy that we're going to read in just a moment. Gavin Childress points out that when Zechariah had fulfilled his duty, that he could speak again. Instead of voicing frustration or anger at the God who had silenced him, he spoke praising God. It is a great mercy from God when we are able to see God's hand in our trials and to praise him when they are over. God's discipline had done its intended work in Zechariah. And Zechariah then is filled with the Holy Spirit and blesses God. Let's, let's read 67 through 79. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I encourage you to study this prophecy more on your own. I mean, there are multiple sermons just in this prophecy alone. It is a gold mine of confirmation of Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. In fact, some scholars have detected as many as 33 Old Testament allusions or quotations just in this short song of benediction and praise that we just read. The days have been dark, but Zechariah now understands that the dawn is coming. And he proclaims how God is keeping his promises of old in four main ways in this prophecy. First, God is fulfilling the Davidic covenant. David's throne is being established forever through his line as the Redeemer of all is coming to establish the forever kingdom just as God promised. This enduring king and kingdom are coming. And Zechariah's vernacular here is as if it's done. There is no more question that God has, is, will do this. The second way Zechariah acknowledges God's promise keeping is through acknowledging God fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. God had promised Abraham when he was childless and his wife was barren that Abraham's offspring that would be greater than the number of stars would become a great nation through which the whole world would be blessed. And in verses 72 to 75, Zechariah confirms the fulfillment of this covenant given right after Abraham was obedient to God in his willingness to sacrifice Isaac through whom the great promise was supposed to come. I imagine Zechariah had become very aware of the similarity between his situation and Abraham's. And this text tells us that because of God doing this, now his people can serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness. The third thing this prophecy shows us is Zechariah blessing God for the birth of John and John's mission. See, he sees the truth of Gabriel's proclamation and he fully comprehends the fulfillment his son is to this prophecy and the role he will play in the advent of the messianic age. And as a sidebar, we don't have time to go down. Um, John's mission involving the first advent of Christ bears a whole lot of resemblance to the church's mission for the second advent of Christ. Lastly, in this prophecy, Zechariah blesses God for the coming Messiah who's going to visit them. He's going to bring light to those in darkness, guiding our feet in the way of peace, just like 
God promised he would. Zechariah has been restored, and he's believing. He's demonstrating his belief through obedience. Faith and obedience, it's the Christian way. It's the mandate of the Messiah. Jesus said, you need to believe in me. And he says, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do what I say. Faith and obedience. It's the requirement for all who would follow Christ. Hebrews 11.6 reiterates this, that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And James 2.17 tells us that faith without works is dead faith. Faith and obedience. This story of Zechariah should give us great warning and great hope. Both are present in this. Zechariah was a good guy. He was upright. He was not a chronic unbeliever. Yet he failed to believe when Gabriel communicated God's plan to him. Be warned. We can just as easily fail to believe God and his words to us. But also be encouraged. If and when we fail to believe God, he's in the business of redemption. He's in the restoration business. Zechariah was disciplined, but he was not cast off. He was corrected, and he was restored. God showed mercy, and his word tells us those mercies are new every morning. God has mercy for you, and his word promises that where our sin abounds, his mercy abounds all the more. There is excess mercy for your sin. Now, as we get toward the end of this story, I've got a confession I need to make to you. We've walked through this story of Zechariah, but we really haven't looked at all of Luke's Advent carol. You see, the story of Zechariah and the birth of John, it's weaved together with the story of Mary and the birth of Jesus. And this isn't by accident. This isn't some sort of author writing ADD going on here where Luke just is bouncing all over the place. Luke wants us to see that there are two ways to respond to God's promises. Either you believe them or you don't. There's a lot of similarities here in these intertwined stories. In both of these stories, Gabriel makes a dramatic appearance to announce a previously prophesied birth. Both of these births are humanly impossible. Mary's a virgin. Elizabeth is barren. Believing both of these announcements requires a faith that God can and will do what he says he will do. But there's also some key contrasts in these two stories. Luke wants us to see that Mary was uneducated, yet she believed. Zachariah was a priest. He knew the scriptures, and he didn't believe. Mary questioned how God would do this, but in a humble way while still believing that God would. She was just curious. Zachariah questioned, but he questioned with an unbelief, like God couldn't do what he just said he was going to do. Mary blesses God as a response. Zachariah is made incapable of articulating anything but eventually gets restored and blesses God. Luke is clearly 
wanting his readers to see the importance of thinking rightly about God, believing he will do what he says and responding to his promises with belief, not with unbelief. Luke comes out of the gate of his gospel, loudly declaring, trust God, trust God, trust God, because he's able and faithful to do everything he's promised. That's how Luke is starting his telling of the Messiah. So let me end by asking a couple of questions. Where is God calling you to trust him today? Where's he wanting you to please him by believing what he has said simply because he's the one who said it, not just because you can envision a path to the fulfillment of it? Do you believe God is credible because he said it, not because you can imagine how it's going to happen? Where's God calling you to trust him today? And then secondly, where... Are you aware of your unbelief and you need to avail yourself to the promised redemption and restoration that Christ offers to the repentant heart? He is willing and able to do what he says and forgive the sins of those that come to him with humble repentance and faith in him to do it. Are there specific things God has said to you, things he's promised in his word that are true and you're like, Maybe. Maybe for some people, not for me. Yeah, I, I believe that, but family, choose to believe. Choose to believe God because of his character, because of his track record, because of his heart toward you. Choose to believe him, trust him, be encouraged that the one true God will do everything he says he will do in his good and perfect time. He does not lie. He does not deceive you. He does not trick you. He is the truth. This Advent season, let's believe God as we wait for him to fulfill every promise he has made. And if there's unbelief, let's be quick to run to him and experience the redemption and restoration that he has for us. It's okay to have questions. It's okay. But let's have a faith-filled humility that doesn't question the veracity of the promise simply because we can't see how it's going to happen that we don't question the character of the one who promised while we wait for him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we can think or imagine. Band, could you come on up, please? As we close here, we're going to sing, but I, I want to take a couple of minutes first for us to just reflect and consider those two questions. Is there an area that you know God is wanting you to trust him in today? struggling.